0: And start shopping at business.walmart.com. That's business.walmart.com. From the MGMA in home studios, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams.
1: One of the things that I talk about when I talk about healing healthcare is all of these, all of the things that are our daily pain points, right? When we talk about retention. Recruitment, uh, morale, patient outcomes, all of that can be improved if we approach the world with more empathy and more compassion and more kindness.
0: That's Jessica Ellis Wilson talking about the importance of empathy, compassion, and kindness when you're looking at healing health care. We'll hear more from Jessica in just a moment, but first, a word from our sponsors. MDVIP's Fee-Based Wellness Program provides a better, more personalized primary care experience for patients and physicians alike. Learn how your group can increase patient satisfaction and loyalty by visiting mdvip.com slash patient loyalty. As a healthcare organization, you routinely check your patient's health. But when was the last time you checked the financial health of your business? Don't let bad billing processes keep you from your hard earned revenue. CareCloud's free revenue cycle assessment uncovers billing mistakes so you can see out a claim every last dollar. Get your free assessment by visiting carecloud.com assessment. Our guest today is Jessica Ellis Wilson. Jessica is a consultant, a speaker, and a coach. Jessica has found through her research that many of our daily pain points, like isolation, social disparities and inequities, and systemic bias can be eliminated by embracing empathy, compassion, and kindness for ourselves and those around us. Jessica, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Daniel.
0: So we were just talking offline and we just have uh, just had the DX conference, had a great experience there. Um, One thing that I haven't had a chance to really ask you is your background, though your background in healthcare, what that journey has looked like, just to set set us off here today, uh, tell us a little bit about that journey.
1: So I think, like most people who have sort of grown in their positions, my journey's been a little haphazard. Um, I am a psychologist by training. I went to. Um, grad school and had to leave and so I was really on a path to do research and then suddenly found myself going, well, no, I guess I need to do, you know, more hands-on care. So I started out as a case manager um, back in, we won't talk about how long ago, but it was right after uh, the introduction of antiretrovirals for HIV and I was doing case management and street outreach specifically for people with HIV and AIDS. Before Medicaid covered them, when there was no way to get insurance coverage, when there was no way to get prescription coverage, and just working with grants in the state of Massachusetts at a community health center trying to do that. And from there, when you you get into community health centers, you either Absorb the mission or you leave real fast. And I absorbed the mission. I was there for years and I worked my way up to, you know, grant administrator and program administrator and then program director. And by the time I'd left, I'd seen us through, you know, five JCO surveys and building satellite clinics and building dental clinics and 340Bs. And then I had the culture shock of a lifetime and went and managed to concierge practice. And it was great experience and the doctors were lovely, but the, the juxtaposition of the two extremes was was pretty jarring. And I went into academic medicine, I managed some private practices that were teaching practices for Harvard and the teaching hospitals in Boston, and then became eventually a um, COO, functionalist COO, um, where I had operations, special projects, compliance, privacy, employee health, all of that stuff for a multi-specialty group in Plymouth, America's hometown. And I did that for almost 10 years. It was just a couple months shy of my 10-year anniversary. And I had a catastrophic car accident. And I was in the hospital for um, about three months. It was 11 weeks. And then it took about a year to be able to walk again. Mm -hmm. And I said, I can't go back to the schedule that we all keep in healthcare where I was on call 24/7 for you know almost 20 years. I was you know never on vacation. I was never off, um, and I was I just couldn't do it anymore. And so I said, well, I I know enough. Um, as they say, I know enough to be dangerous. And, <laughs> And people had been calling me all along to consult and, and give them advice and help them out. And so I said, well, let me let me try to do that. Maybe my expertise can help others and it'll allow me a little more flexibility and balance in my life and not be on call 24-7, not thinking that when you own your own business, of course you're on call 24-7, but it's a little bit different. So that's sort of how I've ended up here. And I started talking at different MGMA conferences and before you knew it, I was getting calls just to speak, and here I am.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, we're glad you're here, and I want to go back to this, what you mentioned, a catastrophic car accident. Um, You said that, you know, for different reasons, uh, you just knew you couldn't keep going on exactly that same path uh, that you were on. Yeah. What was it about that? I mean, maybe there were some physical things you had to work through from physical therapy and that sort of thing. But from mentally, emotionally, and just taking stock, having that self-awareness in your own life, what happened to you there? I guess as you were convalescing, you have that time to just sort of go inward so you can then project that outward as well. So what was that journey like?
1: Well, I'd I'd love to say that I was so self-aware that I came to it sort of on my own. But really what happened was my FMLA ran out. Mm. and my company was being acquired and so they eliminated my position ahead of the acquisition um, where normally I would have been you know I would have seen the transition through but because I couldn't work full-time and I was you know I was still very limited in what I could do I had a severe concussion and I, I was in a wheelchair and my office wasn't accessible and all of these things that were sort of obstacles to that and so the universe really kind of booted me in the back and said, you need to, you need to reevaluate what you're doing. And so I did that, you know, I I took a couple of months and finished my, my physical therapy and finished all of the, you know, four days a week of stuff that I needed to do and said, what do I want my life to look like? You know, do I, if I know I can't go back to that, what do I want it to be? And, and started trying to think through how to, how to create that for myself.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. That is is wonderful. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I want to ask you about your role today. So you said you have made some changes there. I just want to go over a couple of things on your background that are on the, you know, if you go to your LinkedIn page or that sort of thing, but you've got your CMPE, which so many of our listeners here and the MGMA members and MGMA community have that CMPE as well. Um, But you're also today, you're a consultant. You're a speaker, you're a coach. I'm always curious about that because we know in a lot of the, you know, the more rigid, like in your clinical world, when you were there, you were at that facility, you were working with those people, you, were, you, you know, you had a routine there. But what is this consultant, speaker, coach, you know, Swiss Army knife sort of life? What is that like David? It, it
1: really is sort of a multi-tool kind of life. And it's actually, that's one of the best things about it because it's impossible to get bored. You know, sometimes when you're stuck in a routine of every day and it's the same problems and it's the same people and it's the same issues that you're trying to fix and there's too much resistance to actually get it solved, um, there's this ability to do a little bit of everything. So I have I have other consulting agencies as clients that I'm helping guide through figuring out how to handle privacy laws as they move into healthcare consulting from You know different areas i have small you know single doc practices who have left large groups and want to you know start a micro practice and and be on their own and and be more holistic and there a lot of them are really whole body sort of wellness practices which is really an interesting approach something that speaks to me from the from my community health days of looking at all of the issues and not just symptom-based and speaking, I get to hopefully, you know, when I was when I was doing this day to day, you COO, you know, I, I never had time to read articles and research stuff. And I, I relied really on MGMA and some some other organizations to kind of distill down what I absolutely needed to know. Right. And now I have a little bit more time where I can read the books and I can read the research papers and I can really sort of I can be the one distilling down and, and getting that information to people and hopefully you know, giving them some tools to make changes in their daily lives, make changes in their practice and make their lives a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And after every time I, I speak, and I speak almost exclusively in healthcare, I do a little bit, you know, in other industries, but it's, it's primarily healthcare. I have doctors and administrators and uh, nurses and, and it, people coming up to me and saying, your session made a difference. And sometimes it's months later, I get an email going, you'll never guess what I did. after. You know, I came to your session at this conference and I went back and I did this and look how successful it's been. And it's just, it's more rewarding than almost anything else I've done professionally, which is so good. And it also allows me the flexibility. The other thing that I do that I don't talk about a lot professionally is I'm, I'm a creative, I'm an actor, I'm a director, I'm a, and I, I'm a teaching artist. And so we do a lot of teaching, um, and I've I've started to marry that with my consulting. And so this year I did a lot of improv for leaders and improv team building within the healthcare space because it helps, you know, especially in this time of high burnout, we've got a lot of people who need some a different approach. Um, and so it's been really gratifying to to help sort of bring this this thought process to them. So.
0: That is so fascinating. I love talking to you cuz you always throw in that uh that that plot twist. I didn't know about the creative uh acting side, the improv. So, we're going to get deeper into empathy in a minute, but I I want to ask you about this. So, from an acting perspective, from doing improv, from all of that, you know, going deep within and and finding these different emotions uh how does that help you be a more empathetic person and get inside to help other people like that?
1: So, acting and, and improv specifically, a lot of the skill sets that you need are the same skill sets that we need when we think of being a really good leader. So, it's being authentic, it's listening. And listening to hear, not listening to respond, right? It's active listening. It requires empathy and compassion because you have to understand where the other person's at to be able to meet them, whether it's for a scene or an improv skit or whether it's leadership conversations. It's learning to release your expectations and not hold so tightly to how you think things should be. It's learning to, you know, the, the, the rule of improv is yes and. And teaching that to leaders, saying, you know, how many of us go, that's a great idea, but we can't do it for X, Y, or Z. And when we learn to say, at least for the brainstorming parts of sessions, to say yes, and tell me more about that, and let's explore that. Even if, you know, it's the most outlandish idea in the world, it will, it may spark something that you can work with. And, you know, when we get to that sort of divergent thinking and we we encourage people to, you know, throw out whatever they they can come up with, no matter how outlandish it may seem, we get more ideas, we get better ideas, we get more innovation, more creativity, you know, and all of these sorts of skills lead to more inclusive social categories, they lead to better collaboration, they lead to, you know, better connection between coworkers, between staff, better teams, more pro- productivity, better morale, less turnover, all of these things that we're really trying to get to, right? And it's so simple to just take a minute and listen and make that authentic connection. That's, it, it takes less than 40 seconds. Less than 40 seconds to make an authentic, empathetic connection. The research is there. Stephen Treziak and Anthony Massarelli, um, two doctors from uh, uh, Johns Hopkins, uh, did enormous research in this, and they published the book Com- Compassionomics a couple of years back. And it's, the, the data is there, 40 seconds, that's all it takes
0: that's remarkable so that title again is let me make sure so i can put that in the show notes for people what's the name of that title?
1: Compassionomics. okay so i will i'll be happy to forward you anything that i talk about if you just want to make a note send it to me and i'll send you all the links because i have them all i give them in uh, in some of my talks because people people then go how do i find this you know magical book how do i find this magical ted talk Right? right so i I'm a big believer in having as many resources as possible.
0: So. Well, talking about resources for a moment, I did want to ask you about that because you dropped a little nugget there. You said in the past, and I, I know that our, our listeners can be nodding their head about this. There's just not the bandwidth to do that reading that you may want to do, You know that you want it, that have that distilled information. But you said in your new chapter here that you have had time to do some reading besides Compassionomics. Has there been another book or two that's really spoken to you? Or I- even if it's a TED talk, whatever that resource is, what's something that's really helped shape the way you think about things?
1: So there's been a, there's been a lot. Um, when we're talking about empathy, um, I've done a lot of, I read a lot of the research studies published by Helen Reese, who's the director of empathy research for MGH. And she published a book too called The Empathy Effect. Um, but i've been I've really been digging into the research um, and I've been do, digging a lot into the research of bias and the the science of bias um, and shame on me for having only read you know one of his books before, but I've been devouring um, Ibram Kendi's books um now that he's local in Boston where we're very proud to have him but you know, there's a lot of really great information out there. And TED Talk, I really encourage people to, to go to TED Talks. There's wonderful TED Talks about empathy and compassion. There's wonderful TED Talks about um, bias. In fact, uh, Steven Treziak just recently did a TED Talk um, or a TEDx talk on his, his research. And they're such, they're good, you know, short times. Um, AMA has Doc Talk Podcast. I listen to the MGMA Insights Podcast, obviously. Um, there's one, but, you know, we have so little time. But if we're, you know, if we're doing the laundry, and we're, I listen to podcasts almost all day long. I do now, too. I'm, I'm, I'm doing laundry. I'm, I'm in the car. I'm, I'm exercising, you know, whatever it might be. Um, the only time I don't is when I'm trying to do yoga because I, I have to have a different right. kind of focus. But you know, it's, it's such a great way to get information. And sometimes, you know, I think I'm, I'm halfway through laundry and I hear something that's like, ah, I don't have a piece of paper to write that down. And I've got to remember to go back and listen to it again. But for the most part, it's a great way to get information without having to take the time to sit down. You know, we all have those, those, you know, we're in, we're on our commute, we're on our, you know, I do a lot of audio books also, but those are like my, my guilty pleasure. Those are right. murder mysteries and things like that. But you know, to really do the research, if, if you don't have time to sit down and read through 30 pages of research studies, which, you know, for most people, you don't want to do that anyway. It's, it's most 20 pages of those are going to be about the methodology that you don't care about unless you're a researcher, right? But to, to really have the chance to look at what people are finding and, and hear about the new stuff. I, highly, I recommend Doc Talk Insights and the TED Talk, the TED Science and TED Health channels to anybody who, who is interested.
0: Those are wonderful. And we will put those in the show notes. You can just click right on them if you want that easy access. So I want to jump to uh, another topic here. It's in the same vein, but you did just speak... Um, for MGMA a couple of different times in San Diego uh, last month and then uh, virtually this week. Uh, we're speaking the week before Thanksgiving and uh, your topic in San Diego was on healing health care. I want you to give us sort of a thumbnail sketch, an idea of what healing health care means to you and some of the main themes of that talk.
1: Well, I start with saying that I'm not I'm not pointing out anything we don't already know when I say that healthcare is broken, right? And healthcare is broken at almost every step. Our our patients are are disengaged and in some cases actively being harmed rather than helped. We're we're inflicting moral injury on our staff and our providers, where and our administrators. We, there's just, there's so much wrong with the system. And I think that the pandemic certainly exacerbated that and sort of forced everybody's hand because we saw it before, you know, 2020, but it, it is absolutely at a head and at a breaking point now. And so, you know, one of the things that I talk about when I talk about healing healthcare is all of these, all of the things that are our daily pain points, right? When we talk about retention, recruitment, uh, morale, patient outcomes, all of that can be improved if we approach the world with more empathy and more compassion and more kindness. And um, I was on a a virtual call last night for a, a committee that I sit on, and people had made the point that there's a vast difference between nice and kind. And we teach people how to be nice we teach our staff when we're talking about customer service skills, we taught, we teach them how to be nice. We don't necessarily teach how to be kind. Um, And the, the empathy deficit in the U S means that we're losing, you know, those connections and we're losing the, the imperative to be kind. And so, you know, I take people through first, you know, sort of definitions of empathy. And then I give, what I hope are some reasonably simple actionable steps that you can take to increase your own empathy. And then also to, you know, to bring it to your teams and help to increase their empathy as well, because the research shows that if we are more, if we have a more empathetic organization and a a company with empathetic values that you have less turnover, you have higher morale, you have higher productivity, your patients have better adherence to treatment modalities and medication regimens. They have better quality outcomes and health outcomes overall. You have, you're less likely to be sued. You spend less money in malpractice claims. Like there's just, there's so many direct and indirect benefits to doing this. It, It boggles my mind that we don't, we haven't truly incorporated it, you know? And it's in a lot of people's and organizations mission, vision, and value statements that go on the wall and get pointed to when Jacob comes and never really gets absorbed into the culture. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And so that's what I try to, to instill in people is that it has to be in the culture because humans are mimics and we will behave the way we see others behaving for good or bad, you know, just disrespect dissatisfaction and, and, those negative emotions are contagious. They corrode people, they corrode relationships, they corrode organizations, but empathy, compassion, and kindness are also contagious. And so people are gonna mimic what they see, what they see their leaders doing, what they see their colleagues doing.
0: Thank you for sharing that. Tell us about this then, because we, not breaking news here, but it's been a difficult 20 months or so with the pandemic, physically, emotionally, Uh, financially, everything you can think about. So we've seen some very bad behavior, but we've also seen some really amazingly good behavior as well. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's been any research on it yet, but either anecdotally or research that you've seen, has empathy increased, decreased, or stayed the same during these last 20 months?
1: So... The research shows that it's decreased and it was was decreasing before that. So what's not really clear is, has it decreased at the same rate it was before? Um, I tend to think it probably is decreasing at the same rate because as much as there's been increase in certain things, there's also been that increase in stress. And when we're more stressed, it's harder to be empathetic towards others because we're sort of focused in on ourselves the more upset and stressed and overwhelmed we are, the less empathy we have for others. Um, and the current thinking is that the average American is waking up with a 25 to 30% emotional tax, which means that on any given day, you are 25 to 30% more stressed at baseline than you were in you know, December of 2019. And the research shows that it's higher in healthcare, and that varies by degrees, whether you've been frontline ICU, COVID care, you know, or you've had to shut practices down or lay people, you know, the, the more stressors you've had involved, the higher that tax has been on you. And one of the ways that humans overcome stress and overwhelming, you know, circumstances is by human moments. And human connections and we've lost a lot of those because of the pandemic as well. You know, a lot of us aren't going out as much as we, you know, did pre-pandemic where, you know, and when we are, we're masked most of the time even if we're vaccinated because, you know, that's what the the guidance is telling us to do. And so we're losing the opportunity those casual human contacts. And those human moments are foundational in you know this sense of community this sense of belonging and what we're getting is people who are more isolated withdrawing even further social media doesn't help that because depending on what social media you're on the algorithm drives community or it drives conflict right so depending on which one which one you're on and which algorithm is being triggered you're either in an echo chamber or you're constantly stressed because you're constantly being exposed to things that you're opposed to. So that doesn't help. (laughs) Um, You know, when you have a group of friends to get together, then you have sort of that natural conflict, because of course, not everybody's going to agree with everything. And, you know, you're going to agree with some things and disagree, and it allows a more healthy interaction. Um, What we're seeing now is people are just much more vitriolic. They're much more likely to be antagonistic and angry and violent, whether it's violent with words or violent with actions. Um, And it's interesting because we initially saw a dip in in violence um, when the pandemic first got started. And then after, you know, four months or so of sort of you know, isolating and staying, then we, start. then we started to see it creep back up higher domestic violence, higher, you know, intimate partner violence. And so, and that's just continued. And, you know, as things o- reopened, we saw, you know, a huge spike in mass shootings and, and active shooter incidents. And so until we can get the empathy back, it's it's easy to be violent towards people if you can dehumanize them, right? right. if you can other them enough. And one of the things that empathy teaches us is to seek commonality is to remove that othering, to overwrite it. And so that makes it a lot harder. And it, it sort of forces you into being kinder because you see how alike you are with someone.
0: Mm-hmm. Is- so <laughs> you've, you've, There's a lot to unpack here, but one of the things I want to comment from what you were saying is that um, very recently I was in a book club. We read Brene Brown's book, Braving the Wilderness, Mm -hmm. got to the chapter where, you know, it's it's harder to be anti-someone else when you get up close to them. You know, from a distance, they're just, as you were saying, they're dehumanized or they're just just this thing that i don't know but when you get up close it's so much more difficult to uh continue to have this anger toward them unfortunately when we brought this up in the uh in the book club and these are all people who really wanted to be empathetic and be connective to other people they just said mm, i don't i don't want to talk to these I, and we weren't defining who the other was, it's the main thing to know here is it's other. It's not me. It's not my clan, my group. It's this other group. Don't want to talk to them. Don't want to sit down with them. Don't want to, uh, you know, have this discourse. How do we get beyond that? Because I know the, the problem is there There was that isolation during the pandemic even more. We already saw it before the pandemic, but social media, warriors, uh, that sort of thing, like no matter what side of anything you're on a lot of anger, hatred, you're other, you're not me. How can we break down that barrier? Because I will say we're many of us are going to be traveling or having people travel to us next week for Thanksgiving. And there's always Oh, gosh, Uncle Larry's there. I can't say anything around him because boy, we'll, we'll get our fist, you know, balled up here and we're going to be fighting. So How do we have this discourse where we can see each other as human beings? How do we peel down that next layer?
1: Well, there's, I wish I could give you, you know, a a magic answer (laughs) that would solve it all. Um, But it is, it is a lot. And it's part of the problem is that here in the States, we are trained, we are, we are trained to avoid any kind of controversial topic, right? It was always the thing to talk about. Politics don't talk about religion, don't talk about money, right? None of the things that will, will trigger just dis, uh, disagreement. And because we did that, because we said we're not gonna have these deep, meaningful conversations, because we don't wanna risk rocking the boat and upsetting people, we've almost lost the ability to have those conversations at all. And so we have to sort of relearn and retrain and say, You know, there are some things that it is okay to disagree on, you know, it is okay if we disagree on how our money is spent at the government level or, you know, whether, you know, ex-celebrity is is doing the right thing by throwing their hat into the ring into politics or, you know, there are some things that I think a, a civilized society should agree are not up for debate, you know, the humanity of certain groups, I think, should be, you know, a a given and not a topic for debate. Sadly, it is still a topic of debate here. Um, And uh, elsewhere. we are not unique in these problems. But if we, if we individuate people, if we seek to, to find where we have common ground, um, when we're talking about family, some of the easiest ways to do that when, you know, oh, don't talk to, you know, Uncle Larry or aunt Susie or whoever it might be, um, find the things that you have in common to talk about. And then sometimes it's as simple as if a statement gets made with which you fundamentally disagree, just saying, I don't share that opinion or that confuses me. Tell me more about it. It will make your blood pressure rise. Um, there are many uh, family and friend gatherings over the years that I have you know just resorted to pouring more wine (laughs) because sometimes you just you don't have the emotional capacity to sort of have that conversation but when you do seek to understand you may you don't have to agree you don't have to validate but you can seek to understand and that sort of removes the conflict. If you say, you know, Uncle Larry is 80 years old and we are not going to change the way he thinks about anything, but we can still stop him from saying, you know, pick pick a, right. pick a, hor- a horrible thing, you know. Yes. We can still challenge it when he says it. But challenge doesn't have to be, you know, violent, angry, you know, loud. It can just be, why do you think that? Tell me more about that. And then just question, be that, be the toddler. Why? Well, why? Well, tell me why. Well, explain this to me. And eventually they'll either stop talking about it or they might, they might get to a point where you get to, well, this happened to me. And that's why I think that. And again, it doesn't have to make you agree with it, but it gives you an insight into how, why they arrived where they are. Um, stop shying away from difficult conversations right we do it in our family we do it at work we you know how many times have i walked into a practice and i hear well so and so is you know in this position and they've been doing this job for 20 years and they're really terrible at it and we've tried them at five other different positions and they're just you know but they've been here for 20 years Have, have you ever have you ever sat them down and said what's the problem here? Well, no, we we shy away from conflict so much and we shy away from difficult conversations and we make them much harder than they have to be Um, because we've just almost to the point of fetishizing non-confrontation. And confrontation is not unhealthy in and of itself. Confrontation is natural. You know, if we all thought and did and believed the same things, the world might be more peaceful, but it'd also be a lot more boring, yes. right? So, yes. so we have to have differences and we have to celebrate those differences when they, are, when they are constructed differences, you know? And I am the first person to say, you know, punch Nazis all day long, right? As much as, you know, we try not to get into politics. I, there are some things when, when we're talking about groups that are seeking the destruction of other humans, those are, it is okay to, to be angry about those. But when we're talking about, you know, this the, the, this person, you know, this politician or this, you know, group of, this religious group, or, you know, as long as they're not causing true active harm, immediate harm, let's seek to understand and then get to, you know, okay, I heard you out. Now I would like you to hear me out on why I disagree. Sometimes you don't get to that, but it starts the way it starts a path to have meaningful conversations instead of just let's avoid that conversation and cheers guys let's just not talk about that right because it doesn't get us anywhere right it gets well it gets us here this is it gets us here and we don't want to be here
0: exactly um one of the great joys in life is laughter you are in improv i mean i have been i've been in the audience it's just a laugh fest sometimes painful laughter sometimes <laughs> legitimate you know laughter but um there's true joy in that and just laughing to me is one of the great medicines that i've ever encountered and i bring this up because I think it's got to be pretty tough being a comedian today. And there are, I mean, certainly it's one of those things that we look into the lens of, well, I think almost any human being could realize that's offensive. But then there's little shades there. And it's not to try to get political about it or anything else. But you're someone who's in this field because they're probably, even in your improv troupe, there may be impressions that someone could have done that could now be people would go, well, that's an offensive to a certain uh, group of people or a certain nationality or ethnicity yeah. or anything else. And so maybe it hon- has you honing in, not you particularly, but anyone who's in improv rethinking, well, do I go for that joke? Do I go for this one? So what are your thoughts on laughter is good medicine and let's do this and not offend people as well. And how do we, how do we navigate that?
1: I'm so glad you asked me that question. So first of all, yes, laughter is amazing medicine. It brings laughter, laughter in a group brings people together. Again, you know, the happier you are, the the more you're able to laugh and and joke around, the more, for lack of a better term, happy brain chemicals get released, which lead to more inclusive social categories, which leads to less othering and more affinity. You know, there's lots of reasons that laughing is good. Comedy historically, punches up. So you can make fun of celebrities, you can make fun of politicians, you can make fun of the king, you can make, you know, bullying punches down. Okay. And so that's the difference. We have here in the States um, embraced a, a style of comedy that punched down a lot. When you look at some of the, you know, the more popular uh, comedy movies from the 80s and 90s, mm-hmm. even, even into the 2000s, um and it it was always you know bullying and and offensive to those marginalized groups that they were targeting but they never voiced to be able to say that um or they didn't have an outlet where they were heard for saying that they certainly were saying it um and if we look at you know some really amazing comedians who are punching to the side which means they're they're talking about their own groups, they're talking about their own, you know, their own experiences, perfectly okay. You talk, and again, punching up. Politicians should never be off the table for comedians. They should be, (laughs) all day long should be the targets because there is not a politician out there who has not done something that we can make fun of. Um, But when we talk, and and recognizing that and saying, you know, what's funny about, you know, punching down at this marginalized group we're we're relying on stereotypes that don't, that are that are based in you know steeped in bias and have really not a lot of connection to reality and they're just perpetuating these harmful stereotypes and so when we talk about improv and comedy there's lots of ways to do this that are universal that are that can be that can bring joy to everybody that don't target groups with less societal power and I think that you see that a lot you know if you watch things like whose line is it anyway they're very conscious of that that you know they're very conscious of punching up Um, and that's that's the the old standard and so I think you know there's a lot of people who who walk around now and say well I can't make that joke it's offensive we'll figure out why it's offensive because I bet you can make the same type of joke and it'll ju- it'll be just as funny if it doesn't rely on those types of of harmful stereotypes, you know. And I make jokes all the time, you know. I'm I'm of Irish descent, and you know, Irish and English, and you know, we conquered an entire planet for spices we never use, and we, you know, we, we have, you know, we're really good at two things: it's holding grudges and drinking, right? So you know, I can I can say these things because I'm. It's about me, right? It's about and I'm punching, you know, inward, and (laughs) that makes it funny, right? Whereas if somebody else who was, you know, of, you know, Italian descent said those things about people who are English and and Irish, nuggets of truth, but, you know, it's not as funny, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's where we have to, you know, as long as we, as long as we're conscious of, you know, we can make, we can joke, we can make fun, we can do things, as long as the goal is not to be mean and a lot of times you know some of those those really offensive comedy and it was a whole thing right shock comedy yeah. Howard oh, Stern yeah. and you know all of that Andrew Dice Clay and yep. and you know there's more whose faces are in my in my yeah. brain but names are not following you know George Carlin mm-hmm. they got you know it, it, they became they, they created this genre where it really was punching down Mm-hmm. right and and it caught on because it was so it was not the thing that you did and it was oh my god I can't believe that they said that and oh, and it, it, it's been normalized to such an extent that we've sort of lost those filters of you know uh, mm-hmm. is it kind is it true is it necessary to mm-hmm. to say you know what are we doing here and if you go to the comedians from before that, if you, if you listen to, you know, Richard Pryor and, you know, Arsenio Hall and uh, Robin Williams and, um, you know, all that sort of contemporary genre, they didn't do that. No. They, you know, and, and the sh- you can see where the shift happens. And, you know, I'm starting to see the shift back. Even if you go back to, you know, Monty Python, Monty Python was known for being, you know, crude and vulgar and, and having these, these horrific jokes. But again, they were making fun of themselves. They were making fun of the culture they were in. They were making, they were punching up.
0: Right, correct.
1: Um, and so it, it'll be interesting to see if this sort of new cultural awareness brings us back to that type of comedy.
0: Mm-hmm. I just, I had to ask you that. It's one of those things because I love to laugh so much and I'm going, what, what do we do now? How do we handle comedy? How do we deal with this? And it's just such a wonderful way that you describe that. So you stole some of my thunder. I had a question uh, about one of our other speakers. So if anybody had the opportunity or didn't uh, to hear one of our keynote speakers, uh, Shola Richardson, um, speak either in San Diego or at the DX conference, mm-hmm. His his uh, speech, his talk was about kindness. And so he had three about questions. Ubuntu,
1: right? Ubuntu. Yes,
0: yes, yeah. exactly. And he had uh, posed three questions to ask before. You know, sometimes if we're affronted, if we are insulted, or if we're challenged, or our emotions get uh, in the way, and we're about to respond, he says, stop and ask, you know, what you're going to say or do is it true, is it kind, and is it necessary? And I, that's why I wanted to come to you and ask you, someone else who also thinks about these topics, what does that mean to you? And, and kind of elaborate on that. I'd love to hear your thoughts about that.
1: Yeah, I, I spend a lot of time teaching people to, to think about these things. Because again, not everybody is gonna think, act, or believe exactly like we do. Um, and we we have become a culture where disagreement is viewed as disrespect and that is that should never be the case we should we should be able to disagree we are founded we are a nation founded on the concept that we should be able to disagree right Um, and so what we have to get to is the existence of beliefs other than our own are not a personal attack the existence of beliefs other than our own are not disrespect. Now, there is a lot of disrespect being shown in the inability to hear people out or the inability to to have civil conversation. But the the mere existence of others is, is not a personal attack, right? And so when we, especially on social media, but even in person, you know, if someone says or does something that we really disagree with, before you post an angry comment or, you know, retweet it with, you know, this, you know, look at this idiot, you know, is it necessary? Is it kind? Is it true? You know, if it's just a disagreement, you know, and I see, I've seen some of the most virulent Twitter arguments over nonsense, like pineapple on pizza and is, you know, is a taco a sandwich and, you know, just these, (laughs) Ridiculousness. Is it?
0: <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead.
1: In my personal opinion, no, because it's there's not. You need two holes, right? You know, a quesadilla <laughs> is a sandwich, but not a taco. But but again, like it. It, it does not matter mm-hmm. if we disagree. You know, again, if if the if somebody is posting blatant lies and misinformation, and they are influencing you know, something important, then maybe it is necessary to say something to, to refute. But again, you can refute without resorting to name calling. You can, you know, you can have a cogent intellectual conversation without allowing emotion to color it, without devolving into mudslinging and insults. And, and if we do that, then you may not, have the, you may never change that other person's opinion, but others who are viewing the conversation will be able to see both sides and make their own decisions. And people who are perhaps targeted by that misinformation, by that lie, by that whatever it is, will see that they are not alone. You know, so sometimes it is necessary to speak up, to challenge, to to not let something pass. You know but when we're talking about opinions we're talking about you know the latest taylor swift novel or the music or right. you know whatever it is scroll keep scrolling it is not necessary to comment on everything that you disagree with and it is not necessary to comment rudely on everything that you disagree with you know if somebody loves pumpkin spice let them love don't yell at them for being you know uh, uh you know beret wearing tree hugging whatever you know epithet you want to throw at them let, let them have their, you know, let them have their pumpkin spice gotta have their
0: pumpkin spice
1: <laughs> I was in line for peppermint mocha the day it came into the stores you know like <laughs> it, let if it's not hurting people let people like what they like right. let it just let it go even if you think it's the dumbest thing in the world let it go mmm save your energy for the things that matter, save your energy for where people's lives are affected, where people, you know, are, are being harmed. And then again, you know, do your best to keep emotion as out of it as you can, you know, refute with facts, refute politely, you know, and, and that's where the, is it true? Is it necessary? Is it kind really comes in because you can say a lot of different, you can say true things a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm you know you can say listen idiot (laughs) you know this thing is true or you can go listen you may not be aware but this thing is true and here's the source to back it up and it's going to be received very differently
0: right that's that's so good i want to ask one more or bring up one more thought that shola richardson brought up that just resonated so much to me that he said if you open a door for someone and they walk through it but they just kind of rush past you and don't say thank you and then you're aggrieved you know then you're making this about you you open the door so they could get through the door not so you could then have this magnanimous moment where they turn around and say well thank you so much uh yeah. for opening the door for me in that moment it really isn't about you you're there if you're if you've chosen to let somebody in, I do it all the time on the highway, you know, if they're entering the freeway or whatever, let them in, they don't have Mm -hmm. to put a hand up, I'm not cursing them or flipping them the bird if they didn't thank me, (laughs) you know, it's about them letting them have a a moment there, and so talk about that, how we can get out of the idea or mindset where when we do a kind gesture, one of these, quote, random acts of kindness, we have to get the mindset right, that it's really about the act of kindness, not so it comes back to us and we're patted on the back for it.
1: Exactly. It's not about the recognition. And that can be hard for a lot of us. Like we want to be recognized for doing, you know, for being good people. We want to be, you know, seen as someone who is kind and most of us anyway. And what we have to remember is to sort of remove our ego from it. And remember that the act of kindness is, in and of itself the point of the gesture. You know, when we talk about lifting others up, when we talk about opening doors and and holding holding the way open for people coming behind us. The goal is to get more people through the door, right? Not the, not to be thanked every time. And I started doing some some stuff and I've taught, you know, my my nieces and and the children in my life that, you know, to do good without expecting recognition, to do it without it being transactional, um, to do it for the sake of doing it, and, you know, it's a hard lesson for all of us to learn, because we want to be thanked, we want to be seen, but to do these sort of anonymous acts of kindness sort of teaches you, because you have to, you can't, you can't post about it on your social media, you can't talk about it to your friend, because you want it to stay quiet, right? And so starting to do that, it, simple things like, you know, a lot of people love to, you know, pay for the coffee of the person behind you in line, right? But, you know, I will take that five bucks and I'll tip the barista, you know, and th- because if they're in line, they have the money to get the coffee, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, and, and they never notice that, you know, <clears throat> until later when they see that five dollars in the jar and they go, oh my goodness, you know. And I'm long gone. They have no idea it was for me. So it's, it's, it's simple things like that. And again, you know, we're moving the idea that relationships are transactional. Um, and on the one hand, it is a good thing to, con- to consider and weigh if a relationship is one directional, right? So if there is someone in your life for whom you are constantly giving, but who is not there for you that's a, that's a a reflection and a, a conversation with yourself that you need to have. But, you know, a true authentic connection and a true authentic friendship, you are not keeping track of, well, I got picked up your kids from school three times and you've, you know, only, you know, treated me to dinner once, you know, like this is not, there's not a transactional nature. It is you are there for each other when things are needed. And I think, if we start to think about our relationship to the world in that way, be there for people when you're needed as much as you can. And then, you know, yes, there are certainly people in the world who are going to take advantage of that. And it's pretty easy to weed those out, you know, when you really start looking at it as just, I'm going to do as much as I can and learn to say no when I can't. Because you also have to be kind to yourself, and that's something again that we are not really trained to do. Um, we're trained to see self-care and, and self-kindness as as being selfish, as being you know not you know not a team player. All of these things, but we have to have. I use the analogy that of being on an airplane, and they tell you make sure your own mask is affixed before you help those around you. Because if you're giving and giving and giving, and you're never you know repleting then you are, you're eventually going to have nothing left to give.
0: I love that. Well, I want to ask you just one final question as we are nearing Thanksgiving. What are you thankful for?
1: I am thankful for my health, um, particularly after the accident. Um, I am thankful for my family's health. We've had a lot of health challenges over the last year and a half. And I'm thankful that I have my loved ones around me. And as much as I am not thankful for the pandemic and and all of the horrible things that have happened, I am thankful for the things that it's brought in, the real stark relief and allowed us to see a little more clearly. And hopefully that brings about a better
0: world for all of us in the end. All right. Well, Jess, it is always so much such a joy such a joy to get to talk with you and learn from you so thank you so much for joining the podcast today
1: thank you so much for having me daniel it is absolutely my pleasure
0: well that's going to do it for this episode of insights thanks to our guest jessica ellis wilson also thanks to md vip and to care cloud for sponsoring this week's show CareCloud's free revenue cycle assessment uncovers billing mistakes so you can see out a claim every last dollar. Get your free assessment by visiting carecloud.com/assessment. An MDVIP's fee-based wellness program provides a better, more personalized primary care experience for patients and physicians alike. Learn how your group can increase patient satisfaction and loyalty by visiting mdvip.com slash patient loyalty if you like the show please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast if you have topics you'd like us to cover or experts you'd like us to interview email us at podcast or you can find me on twitter at mgma_daniel. mgma insights is presented by declan mcgee rob ketchum And I'm Daniel Williams. Stay safe and thanks for listening. Hi, this is Declan McGee, one of the producers for the MGMA Insights Podcast. If you like the work we're doing, please consider becoming an MGMA member. Learn more at mgma.com slash membership. Thanks. The popular buzzword we've been seeing everywhere is AI. But what we all want to know is how we can implement and use it to our advantage when it comes to improving margins accelerating cash flow and optimizing staff performance there's a one-stop shop using cloud-based predictive analytics mgma analytics is your ai-enabled tool that upscales technology you've already been paying for so you can silo your disparate systems and make data-backed business decisions visit mgma Dot com slash analytics and see how AI can revolutionize your finances and operations. Again, visit mgma.com slash analytics today.